You guys, as you know, we're in the, uh, the Nehemiah series, and as I was studying for this, I, I just thought, I asked myself the question, what does Nehemiah's name actually mean? And it means Yahweh comforts, and that means God comforts, and I thought, wow, what an interesting definition for Nehemiah's name. This man who God calls, and he's, he's the cupbearer to the king, and, and God says, his, his name is Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, what he does is he petitions the king, and the king gives him permission to go rebuild the wall in Jerusalem around the temple. And so, uh, as, I, as I was thinking about it, and I'm studying, I'm going, this man who did what was impossible and even petitioned to the king to go do this thing, is he, what he does for the, for the Jewish people is he brings God's comfort. And his name is a representation of that. I thought that was pretty cool. That one's free. Um, so we are still in the Nehemiah series, and I'm just gonna blow through this real quick because Kelly did a pretty good recap last week. So Nehemiah, in the beginning of the book, he prays and he fasts for 120 days. I don't ever wanna fast for 120 days, ever. We do a three-day fast, and it's tough. But 120 days, this is dedication. And, and what happens when he prays and he fasts he had a God vision and he had this thing that God had placed in his heart and he soaked it in prayer and he soaked it in fasting and he rooted it in God and God blessed it and Nehemiah began to build the wall and Kelly has said it multiple times. I think Mike may have even referenced it. It only took 50 some days after the 120 days of praying and fasting. It only took 50 some days for them to actually fill, build and finish building the wall. We learn that we stand and we fight for one another. While they're building the wall, they have like a masonry trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they have a trumpet somewhere. I don't know where the trumpet is because they only have two hands. They probably have to drop the trowel, pick up the trumpet, keep the sword, sound it off. And when the others who are building the wall around the city hear it, they come running to the breach in the wall. They take care of one another. And that's what we're called to do as a church body. When you hear a trumpet sound, you run to your brothers and your sisters and, your care, and you care for them. Last week, we saw Nehemiah rebuke the Jews who were exploiting the other Jews. They were actually taking advantage of them. They were lending them money, and they were charging them interest. Some of the Jews were having to sell their kids into slavery so that they could make it, and Nehemiah goes to them and says, what you're doing is wrong, and you need to make right. Also, as a church, we have a responsibility to hold one another accountable. This is probably one of the hardest things to do in the church is go to your brother or your sister and say, hey, you know what, what you're doing right now probably isn't really helpful, and you should probably stop. We should be in relationship enough to know the things that are good for each other and bad for each other. That's how close we should be. We should also feel comfortable enough to go to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, this isn't good for you. If I'm in a place where I'm, and I've encouraged my life group over time, <clears throat> If I'm doing something wrong or I'm doing something that's not helpful, I have encouraged them to come to me and tell me. I'm not going to get any better if you don't. And so I want to encourage you guys as a church. If, I don't want you guys running around, you know, spouting off scripture and rebuking people just for the sake of rebuking people. But I do want you to be able to feel comfortable enough to go to your brother and your sister and say, hey, this is a thing. Or, hey, I'm hurt or I'm offended. Can we, can we talk about this? Can we work through this? We're not going to get any stronger or any closer or look more godlike unless we start doing those things and doing them well. So we know Ezra rebuilt the temple. The, the book prior to Nehemiah is the book of Ezra. God called Ezra to rebuild the temple, and we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah, and now Nehemiah is building the wall around the temple. <clears throat> 
We're going to be looking at chapter 8, verses uh, 1 through 12. But before we get there, I want to glance at chapters 6 and 7, because Kelly talked out of chapter 5. So fly over chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 starts again with who? Sanballat, Tobiah, and a guy named Geshem. And they're still plotting against Nehemiah. Now they're sending messengers to Nehemiah, and they're trying to trick him and get him to come to them. In verse 2 of chapter 6, it says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And he keeps responding, telling them no. I wonder if it's because the plain was called, Oh no, don't go there. In his mind, he's like a little prophetic picture. It's like, God's warning me. Don't go to Oh no. So they finally send him another messenger, and, and, to, and, I, and I believe it's Sambalat who says, this is what, this is the lie that I'm going to say about you. This is the rumor that I'm going to start to spread. And, and so they're trying to just get Nehemiah, now, now they're threatening him with lies and rumors, hoping that he takes the bait and he comes to them. He doesn't, he sends another messenger back and he's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. He, he's confident in God. And then they send a friend of Nehemiah's to him. His name was Shemaiah to trick him into basically hiding. Shemaiah comes and says, hey, you should probably go hide in the temple. Like they're coming for you. And Nehemiah perceives that Shemaiah was not sent from God and is prophesying against him because Sambalot and Tobiah actually hired him. These guys are shady. These guys are willing to do whatever they have to to get Nehemiah to stop building the wall because they're feeling threatened and they're feeling insecure, and they're feeling uncertain, and they're afraid that Jerusalem is going to start a war and take over. Check out Nehemiah in chapter 6, verse 14. I'm just going to read it. This is how Nehemiah prays. And he says, Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to the things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. I wonder if he took a cue from King David. If you ever read the Psalms, David's like, God, smite out my enemies. Take them out. Stop my oppressor. And here's Nehemiah. I hope you guys never pray like this about me. <laughs> Remember Ryan, oh God. <laughs> but he's, it's a daunting prayer. It's like, it's, it, it, it was encouraging for me to know that I can go to God from a, from a posture of like that, like, oh man, that person has wronged me. God, please remember them. And, and I'm not recommending that be a regular thing, but it just caught my attention as I was studying. Like, huh, it's an interesting way to be praying, isn't it? So chapter seven, the wall's done. God puts it on Nehemiah's heart now to get the rest of the ex exiles back. Some of the exiled Jews had already returned and helped rebuild the wall, but a lot had not returned. And so Nehemiah, God says to Nehemiah, puts it on his heart, says, go get the rest of them. Bring them back. The wall's done. The temple is built. I want my people back together. <clears throat> so some had returned and some hadn't. And then he called them all back and they were restored. And one of the big things that suffered during this time in exile was the public reading of scripture. They were called, in, in the Old Testament, they were commanded to, to do public reading of Scripture. And in exile, this suffered. They, they, they lost that. And they stopped reading God's Word. And they stopped studying God's Word. So this is something that has suffered. And now all the people are back together. And this is where we find ourselves in Nehemiah 8. This is like the climax of Nehemiah. 
This took place in 445 BC. Before I read the passage, when I was newly saved, I read First and Second Samuel basically from cover to cover in like one sitting. I was enamored. I was captivated. It was such an enthralling story. And I was so like, oh my gosh, this is so good. If you know me, I'm not a reader at all. I, it is a discipline that I am not good at. I have to struggle to read. I have to remind myself to pick up God's word, to pick up a book that I started, to, to pick up a book that I, I was halfway through that I sat down three months ago that I need to grab a hold of and finish. I'm, I'm not a good reader. So this is a little glimpse of like, oh, this was, it really grabbed a hold of my heart. So I burned through those two books and they just sank deep, deep into my heart and into my soul. And I was with my friend Carrie. I don't know where we were going, but we were on a long drive. And, and I had power talked about First and Second Samuel for like an hour straight. Have you ever been with somebody who's power talked for like 30, 40, 50 minutes, 60 minutes like I'm about to do right now, and you can't get a word in edgewise? I, I, I'm, and you're like, man, I, this person should take a breath. They're going to die. If they don't stop talking, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I realized this. And I stop and I say, oh my gosh, Carrie, I'm so sorry. Like, I have just power talked for like an hour. And, and she, was, she was like, no, this is so good. Keep going. I want to hear the end of the story. And so what had happened was what, what, what had sunk into my heart had got her heart excited and had gotten her excited about God's word and what the story was and how it was going to go and who was who and what was what. And so I continued to talk and I finished the story. This is the best example that I have of the passage that we're about to read in my own life. And if you do have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah 8, and we're going to read 1 through 12. If you don't, it will be on the screen. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he, read it from and he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood 13 dudes. I'm not going to try and say their names. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord uh, with their faces to the ground. Also, 13 dudes and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read the book of the law. They read the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and, and, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed, I'm sorry, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Why don't we pray? God, we thank you for your word. It is transformative. It is like a knife. It, it trims off the calluses around our heart. It tills the soil in our souls. And God, I pray this morning that that is exactly what your word would do that we would become excited about it, that we would become enamored by it, that we would be captivated by it. Even the parts that seem dry or dull or boring, Lord, I pray that you would break in and you would give us, as Southland's Chino, a hunger and a desire for your word. May it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna look back at verses one through three and I'm just gonna read them real quick. <clears throat> Again, and it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. That right there is, is that moment where, where the Lord had commanded Israel to read the book of the law earlier on in Scripture, and they had lost it, and they had to remember it, and they had to, to be recaptivated by it and do the public reading of Scripture again. So Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in, all the present, in the presence of all the men and women and those who could understand it. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I, you know what I love about this is, is right out the gate, it says that they told Ezra to go get the book of the law. It wasn't like, hey, Ezra, do you think you could tell us a story out of the Bible? Like, do, you, do you have time for that? It was like, nope, Ezra, go get the book. We want to hear from the book. And it wasn't just a few people. It was all the people. So they were like, bring out the book. Bring out the book. We want to hear from the book of the law. Go get the book, Ezra. You're the guy that studies it. You're the scribe. You know it. Go get the book and read this to us. It wasn't a passive thing. It was something that they knew they needed and they hungered for and they longed for. They weren't looking to be entertained. Oftentimes we appear, we'll use movies, podcasts, we have sermons that we can listen to online from all over the world and we can find our favorite speaker and we can listen to them. And none of these things are bad, they're helpful and they lend themselves to scripture, but they're not scripture. These people were not looking to be entertained by Ezra. They were looking to hear from a holy book. They were looking to hear from the book of the law of God that had been given to Moses and they wanted to learn from it and they wanted to be shaped by it. This leads to my first point. Hearing God's word brings revival. I want to point out what gives them this desire to hear from God's word so, so intently, and it's God's spirit. I can't imagine any other way that people would want to listen to scripture for six hours. We're only 15 minutes in. We've got five hours and 45 minutes left. So whatever plans you had, you can send out a text. I'm giving you permission to cancel them. Um, but yeah, so six hours, it says from early morning until midday. Early morning was like right when the sun comes up. And then midday's right around noon. So Ezra 
is reading the book of the law for six hours. A gentleman named J. Edwin Orr defines revival as the spirit of God working through the word of God in the lives of the people of God. So they had this stirring in their hearts that was pushing them towards wanting to hear from the word of God. And it was changing the people. It was changing the lives of the people who wanted to hear it. So this is a revival taking place. Have you ever tried reading the first five books of the Bible? That's the book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How about Leviticus? It is dry. It is boring. It's like... Here's the law. If you break the law, here's what you got to do to be saved. If you uh, sprinkle the blood here on this portion of the tabernacle, this is what cleanses you from that. If you've done this offense, this is how you're purified from that. If you do this thing, you need to do that thing. Here's a law about this. Here's a law about that. This is how you repent from this sin. This is, if you're unclean, this is what you do to get clean. And it's like a trank dart. It's like, I'm just going to pass out. I can't read anymore. And here they are sitting under a lot of that reading. I don't know exactly what Ezra read. I would love to know because that would have been very telling. But it very well could have been Leviticus. Six hours is a long time to read. Even if you're an avid reader, six hours is a long time to read. These people were hungry. They wanted God's word. They wanted to be changed and transformed by it. This day was known as the Feast of Trumpets. It was like Jerusalem's national holiday. It was like the fireworks show at Ayala Park the other day. Can you imagine, like Shane, you, you spearheaded that thing. I, 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 could you imagine if you were like, you know what? Let's not do fireworks and food and, and, and hanging out and enjoying each other's company. Let's, let's get Let's find a preacher. Or you know what? Forget it. I'll do it. Everybody here at Ayala Park, stop what you're doing. Sit down. I'm going to read scripture to you for six hours. We're going to forego Fourth of July. How about that? How's everybody feel about that? Hard no, right? Probably. I, not probably. Definitely hard no. You might get a couple of people, but most people are going to be like, uh, no, you're crazy. We're not doing that. These people were ready to to take this holiday and make it second chair to hearing from the word of God. This is like, this is like a church leader's dream. Like the people are coming to church and saying, bring out the book. Bring out the book. We want to hear from the word of God. Can you please just bring out the book and share with us what that book says? Hearing God's word brings revival. Verses four through six say, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood 13 dudes. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord their God with their faces to the ground. They built Ezra like a holy soapbox. The people did this. They built him a platform that he could stand on. It wasn't like the street preacher that you might see down at Huntington Beach who's standing on like the little two by two square that's 12 inches tall. This had to be big enough for him to be elevated high enough for all the people to hear them. And this is what the people did. They built it. And then they told him to go get the book. There was, Ezra was not going to escape this. He was going to be reading from the word of the Lord no matter what, and the people made sure of it. 
It leads to my second point. Position yourself practically and more importantly, in your heart to hear God's word. When I was reading that portion of this passage and I was studying, I had this, this image as, as though I was like flying a drone. You know when a drone flies over and you, you have this bird's eye view of what's taking place. Like I, I imagine this beautiful beach scene where the drone is flying down the wave line and the waves peeling and it's breaking perfectly. So I'm reading this and, and that's that in my mind I have this bird's eye view and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, I'm flying over and I can see Ezra standing on the platform and all the people and he's got the book of the law and he opens it and everybody stands up. And I'm like, wow, what a powerful picture. What an amazing picture. They had reverence for God's word. They recognized its authority. They recognized its love. They recognized its care and they had reverence, and they treated it as holy because they knew that it was. We know that it is. And as I have this bird's eye view, I just go, oh my gosh. And, and, and Ezra blesses God, and all the people lift their hands, and they say, amen, amen. And they bow their heads, and they worship God. Our hearts should be bent towards Scripture in that way. As, as a pastor in this church, I don't do that well. I don't. I want to do it better. I long to do it better. And my heart for you as a church is that you, that we, that us would do it better. Our hearts should be captivated by the word of God. So they build him this soapbox. That's the practical step they took to hear from God's word. And they raise their hands, open hearts, It's the heart posture towards God's word, the honor towards God's word, the holiness and the reverence towards God's word. They made sure that they were in a position to hear what the Lord wanted to say through them through scripture. This is what revival looks like. I've always had this misconception about revival. I think because of TV shows and what you've seen in the news and the media, like there's this white tent out in the desert and people are going and getting, they don't know Jesus and they run to this tent and they get healed and they get saved. And that's true. But the misconception I had, and I think that we've had as a church is is that the revival is to go get unbelievers saved or seekers saved. The revival isn't for the unbeliever. The revival is for the believer. An unbeliever needs to be reborn. So they don't need revival. They need to be born again. There are several scriptural references for that. One is John 3, Jesus is speaking. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be reborn. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 1 Peter 1, 23, he says, you must be reborn. So this is, this is, that's the unbeliever's act of repentance is, is to actually be reborn. The revival is for us for us who have somehow become spiritually sick or spiritually disconnected or, or, or as, as the, the Jews were here, son, in some way, shape, or form, exiled and, and distanced from God's word and they needed to be revived. They needed to be resuscitated. It's like being sick and being in the hospital. I'm a believer, but I'm sick right now and I need you, God, to come and massage my heart and give me some spiritual CPR to revive me. That's what revival is. It's for the believer. The overflow is people getting saved, is people getting healed, is people's lives and circumstances changing. But revival is for the believer. 
Verses 7 and 8, 13 dudes and the Levites help the people understand the law <laughs> while the people remain. <laughs> nice. <laughs> While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Well done, Brittany. That was amazing. <laughs> there were men there to help the people understand God's word. Why is this important? Three reasons. They're not going to be up there, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. <laughs> A, because the things of God are often spiritually discerned and not intellectually discerned. Sometimes we just need somebody to come to us who's a little further along than us to help us understand what it is that we're reading. Because it was written in a different language. Remember I said this was in 445 BC. So when these first five books of the Bible were written, it was centuries and centuries and centuries before. So it was in a different language, it was in a different place, and it was a long time ago. So they needed men and women who could interpret for them and help them to understand what they were hearing. And because, number three, our minds sometimes are slow to understand things that will convict us. You might hear a passage of scripture and you go, well, I don't know what to do with that. And then you sit with your buddy and you're like, I was reading this passage of scripture and I just, I can't wrap my head around it. And your buddy just makes it as plain as day and all of a sudden you go, oh, oh, I gotta repent. Oh, that hurt my heart and our, our flesh and the enemy stops us from feeling that conviction because he doesn't want us to repent. So sometimes we just need someone to come and simply spell it out for us. One of my primary jobs as your pastor is to help you understand the word of God. As life group leaders, if you're a life group leader or you're in a life group, your life group leader's responsibility is to help you understand the word of God. We are there to help interpret scripture for you so that we can all have a better understanding of who God is and what he's called us to and the people that we are under God. If we're not doing these things, we are failing you. If you walk out of here this morning entertained, laughed at a good joke, and without a heart change or having understood God's word a little more clearly, I have failed. I do not ever want you walking out of here having not learned something from the word of God because it is exactly that. I, I want you guys to be entertained. I love to tell jokes. If you've spent any time with me at all, 90% of the stuff that I do is joking and banter and laughing. And it's, I mean, it's true. God made me that way. I tried not to be that way. And God said, no, I made you that way. Okay. My wife wasn't happy about it, but it was what it was. True story. <laughs> I told her I was going to try and be serious. I was like, I'm going to try and be more serious. And about 12 hours in the Lord's life, I, I tried hard, guys. I tried hard. And about 12 hours in, the Lord was like, what are you doing? I'm like, what? He's like, I didn't make you that way. And that's why I went to her and I said, sorry, babe. The Lord said he didn't make me that way. And here we are, you know, so that was a... That was a little rabbit trail, but it's true. I, I want you guys to be entertained, but if that is my primary focus, I am failing you. I don't want to fail you guys. If our life, our life group leaders are, are, are more, more focused on entertainment, we're failing you. We don't want to do that. 
Sure, I do want you to be entertained, but that needs to be second chair to the Word of God and helping you understand that. And you guys helping me understand it. I don't have this all figured out. I never went to college. All of what I've learned has just been on my own and through other men and women who have come into my life and interpreted Scripture for me. Verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this, is, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. He wasn't trying to like say, hey, stop talking. They weren't, that's not what they were saying. They were saying, listen, we hear your mourning and your weeping. You don't have to mourn and weep. Please quiet that down. It's time for celebration. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the people clearly felt conviction from God simply at at the reading and the interpretation of Scripture. They were mourning and they were weeping. And the wisdom of Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites was to say, hey, your mourning and your weeping is right but the conviction that you feel is also cause for celebration because God is working in your heart. That's why you feel the way that you feel. That is a good thing. That is something to be celebrated. Stop mourning and weeping. We recognize your heart posture. We recognize that the word of the Lord is shaping and transforming you, and that is cause for celebration. Our problem is our grief and our shame and our sin is often bigger than Christ on the cross. And when that happens, we minimize Jesus on the cross. It's like walking up to him on the cross and saying, my sin is larger than that death and I'm gonna slap you in the face because this is not enough. You cannot live in a mourning and weeping and grieving place when you have the cross of Christ that covers that sin and saves you, you celebrate because you've been saved. You celebrate because that death on that cross was enough. So if you find yourself stuck in grief and shame and beating yourself down and letting the enemy throttle you, you say, no, Satan, Jesus' death on the cross was enough for me, and I'm not going to sit here anymore under that guilt and that shame because I am free. And that's what they were telling the Jews. No more mourning and weeping. You're free. Go celebrate. Your heart is changed. Clearly, that's evident and true. Go celebrate. Eat the fat and drink the wine, and share with those who don't have or aren't ready for that. That is another communal aspect to all of this. Nehemiah is such a great community building book. And so what do the people do? They do exactly that. They stop mourning, and they stop weeping, and they do what's, what's recommended of them. Go and celebrate, and bring your brothers and sisters who don't have, 
into the celebration because they too are forgiven. They too are experiencing the grace of God. I used to repent of the same sins over and over and over again. And I remember, I've only heard God audibly, like clearly audibly, like I knew it was the Lord. I could hear his words perfectly to me in my life, probably about half a dozen times. Otherwise, it's usually like a sense, some, I, I, I think I know what's going on. I feel like I know what the Lord is saying. This was one of those moments where I knew I heard God speaking and I was repenting of the same sin again. And it had been around how I lived my old life, crime and drugs and, and, and cars and all of the things that, that I went out and did. And I, got, I perpetually repented for those things. And I felt God come and say, who do you think you are? And I was like, what? And I heard him say it again, who do you think you are? And I, and I, I literally responded, I said, I don't understand. And he said, who do you think you are to hold on to this? When I have already forgiven you for it, why do you keep trying to repent for the same sins that are already done with? And I was like, whoa, I repent of that. I put myself and my sin in the place of God. And I walked by that cross every time I repented again and I slapped Jesus in the face and I said it wasn't enough. And so God, in his love and his kindness and his grace, came to me as a loving father firmly and said, who do you think you are? And he corrected me. Don't live under guilt and shame of your sin. Repent. Authentically and genuinely repent and be changed, church. And celebrate. Celebrate. We look at this conviction of sin and sin as, as this bad thing, and it is but conviction of sin is not. And we, we hide because we're afraid of what people are going to think. And we don't want to say anything because we're concerned that people are going to cut us off. You know what? I bet if you confessed one of your deepest, darkened sins, that person's probably going to say to somebody, I know what you mean. I've been there. Or I am there. Thank you for sharing with me. Now I have the boldness to share with you and we can hold each other accountable. Conviction of sin is a good thing. Don't run from it. It's to be celebrated. You know what's interesting and crazy in this passage? They don't even repent here. You notice that? They actually repent in chapter 9. They go and celebrate before that. I'm not suggesting we do that. I think repentance is, 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 is necessary, and, and the quicker we can do it, the better. But it's interesting to me that in this particular passage, they hear from the word of the Lord, they experience the conviction of God, and then they go celebrate, and then they repent. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, there are mysteries in the Bible that I don't understand, and that's one of them. Because my whole Christian life, I've been taught, when you feel conviction, go and repent. Not when you feel conviction, Go party and then repent. But that's what they told the people to do. And we find them, I'm not going to go into next week's sermon because I think we're going to be in chapter 9. We find them repenting in chapter 9. So my third point, grace always wins. Always wins. Always wins. No matter where you're at, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how horrible of a person you may have been, you may think you are, or you may be, grace always wins. There is never, 
a lack of grace in the kingdom of God. And we can learn that through studying his word. We're coming in the land, and I'm going to land in 2 Timothy 3.16, and it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In Jesus, we are made righteous. We too get to rejoice and party, but we rejoice in the full canon of scripture. We don't have just the first five books of the Bible. We have 66 books, so we rejoice in the full canon of scripture from cover to cover, and we rejoice in Jesus most of all. We live free because Jesus paid a debt that we couldn't pay on that cross. There is time for mourning, and there is time for grief, and there is time for revelation and conviction of sin, and we have to talk about sin in the church. It's scriptural. If we don't talk about sin, we're not doing justice to the word of God. But we can't, and we can't gloss over the reality of it, but we can't camp there. We cannot camp in the area of sin. We need to move on because God is convicting our hearts and that is cause for celebration because of what Jesus had done on the cross. We've been reborn and we are free. Ben, why don't you come up? We're going to take communion and I think there are a couple of opportunities for us here as a church Maybe you are living in a sinful place and and this is an opportunity for you to go to the table and repent and take the cracker and take the juice, the cracker that represents Jesus' body and the juice that represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us, the body that was beaten as punishment for the sin and the blood that was poured out that covers our sin. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to repent. Maybe you do that directly with God Maybe you do it with a brother or a sister, a husband, a wife, a friend. This is an opportunity for that. The other side of this is is maybe you're here and you are an unbeliever or you are a seeker exploring the Christian faith. This is an opportunity for you to have heard from the word of the Lord and give your life to Jesus because the word of the Lord has convicted you in a way that has, wanted, that has caused you to want to be in a relationship for, with Jesus. And you can take communion for the first time. If that is you this morning, please find myself, my wife, Jeff, Brittany, one of the leaders, and share that. We want to walk out this journey with you. We don't want you walking out these doors not knowing that you've given your life to Christ. You become a part of our family when you do that. The last thing is at the table is just to celebrate, just like we've been talking about. We can celebrate just in communion. Lord, I can celebrate because of your broken body, and I can celebrate because of your poured out blood, and I can celebrate and do this in remembrance of you, is what scripture says. Jesus says to to the disciples, do this in remembrance of me. That's an opportunity for us to simply celebrate what Jesus did on the cross. It seems counter. You, you, you feel like you do just want to mourn and weep because it was such a tragic thing, but it was such a gift to us, and it was necessary, and it is cause for celebration. So those are the three things I think as a church we can do is go to the table in repentance, go to the table as a new believer, or go to the table in celebration of our forgiveness and the graces that has been afforded to us. 
There's also offering boxes. If you're visiting here, this is just another act of worship for our church as a family to participate in. You have no obligation to give. You're our guest and we just want you to enjoy this service. But that is another way for us to worship. So why don't you go to the tables? We'll partake in the Lord's Supper and we'll sing another song.